Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post. Coming to you today with our Southeast Division preview. Uh, Going to run down the five teams in the division. The Atlanta Hawks, the Charlotte Hornets, the Miami Heat, the Orlando Magic, and the Washington Wizards. Here to talk them, about them are Brad Rowland, Rick Bunnell, Manny Navarro, Danny LaRue, and Candace Buckner. Should be a fun listen. think you'll all enjoy it. Uh, got pretty in-depth on all five teams. Should be a good listen. So I uh, still have two more division previews after this, uh, the Southwest and the Central. They'll come out in the next few days before the season starts. But uh, with that, let's uh, let's get you to Brad and, and the Hawks and start this one off. All right, Brad, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Um, not not quite the same kind of Hawks team that we've been talking about for a while. I, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly how many years in a row. Is it is it 10 years in a row that they made the playoffs now? Yeah, 10 straight seasons of playoff basketball, and the 11th is uh, pretty unlikely. Yeah, seems. I would say pretty unlikely. And it, it's funny, like for a long time, the Hawks were kind of a just a, a drag franchise in the league, kind of a laughing stock. And, you know, really ever since, you know, Joe Johnson finally got them back in the playoffs a decade ago, they've been a consistent, you know, they got the conference finals once, um, you know, getting, getting the second round a lot, um, really, really been a much different feel around the team than it was before, but, you know, never really felt like a true championship contender. Even in that 60 win season, they scraped through the first two rounds of the playoffs. They got blown out. Um, and now they've really started over, you know, they let Al Horford go a year ago, they let Paul Millsap go this year. Um, you know, they trade Kyle Culver away. Uh, they let Damari Carroll walk. I mean, it, the, this whole team is kind of turned over. So I guess you know Atlanta's always been kind of derided as a as a market. Um, but I guess I'm curious, what is the general perception there about this run coming to an end and kind of a you know a complete teardown and rebuild starting there? Yeah, my, my go-to line is always that Atlanta is an NBA town. It's not a it's not a Hawks town because. <laughs> Uh, like if you look at the national TV ratings, that they're always really good in yes. Atlanta. It's just people don't like the Hawks for whatever reason. But yeah, you know, for the most part, I think it's been pretty well received. Uh, the rebuild, you always have that crew of people that doesn't like to rebuild under any circumstances. And obviously, you know, it's a little bit harder when you've been in the playoffs for ten years to sort of sell a rebuild. I think, but it made it a little easier last year that that team was not a lot of fun to watch or cover in my in my. Uh, experience just because you know they won 43 games but it was a, a season where they were actually outscored by their opponents you know the Dwight Howard thing didn't work so it made it a little bit easier to sell it was definitely time to rebuild I was definitely on board with that uh, whether you'll find a you know sort of uni- unanimous support is uh, one thing I don't I haven't really seen that but for the most part people seem to be okay with it yeah I mean it, you know like you said it wasn't like it wasn't like this was the 60 win team that they then proceeded to blow up this was a team that you know kind of scraped into the playoffs and you know it was kind of competitive against the Wizards, but you never really thought they were going to win that series. And it did just kind of feel like this was the, this was the right way for this to end. So um, with that being said, you know, the, the first round pick they had this year, John Collins, was a pretty exciting guy, at least athletically, went to Wake. Uh, so people out in Atlanta are probably at least somewhat familiar from the, from the ACC. But, um, you know, really athletic guy. Looked like he showed some things in summer league when, you know, you, you and I were hanging out there watching him play a little bit. Um, on a team that's currently in a in a rebuilding mode under Travis Schlank as the new GM, how, how much do you do you think he's going to get uh, quite a bit of rope to to kind of learn learn the game on the court, or is he going to have to spend some time you know sitting behind guys like Kristen Ilyasova and, and uh, Dwayne Debman and some of the other bigs they have before he really gets a chance here later in the year? 
I'm hoping that he'll play a lot. Um, with that said, you know, Mike Budenholzer is still around, uh, and the fact that he doesn't uh, notoriously really enjoy young players, especially young players that, that are not de- uh, defense-first kind of players, and that was sort of the one knock on Collins as a prospect was that he was pretty bad defensively in college. That's my one concern. I, I would certainly lean toward him playing more than less uh, early on if I was uh, in charge of making that decision just because it's, it's sort of going to be a lost season in terms of on the court. So if you have this first round pick with uh, some real upside that he sort of flashed in the past already now that I think you want to see him uh, more often than not. They, they do have some quality sort of NBA bigs. Nobody that's going to blow you away between Deadman and Ilyasova and Mike Muscala. Those guys can all play. They're all rotation players, but nobody that's going to be good enough to sort of fully block John Collins. It's just kind of uh, convincing Mike Budenholzer, who's this defense first guy, to uh, sort of give the rookie some rope to play him because, uh, you know, there's no question he has the highest upside of anybody in the front court right now. So he'll be frustrating, I think, for the coaching staff early on. Not that he won't be coachable, but just the fact that he's going to make those rookie mistakes. And uh, this is a staff that's used to being, uh, you know, used used to coaching playoff teams. So I think I'm hoping that he'll play more often than I think he will early on by by is that he won't play a ton, but by the end of the year, I have to hope and pray if you're a Hawks fan that he'll be out there more often than not. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, I th- I th- like you said, there's there's going to be few and far between things to be excited about, so I think that's certainly one of them. And, you know, you can argue that the other one, it might be on the wing. I mean, they drafted two wings in the first round last year, Torian Prince and DeAndre Bembry. Uh, Prince showed, a, you know, had a really nice rookie year, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, Bembry looked like a guy who had some some work to do, but um, I know he has a biceps injury memory at the moment, but what are, what are the chances you think that both of those guys, I mean, let's start with Prince first. We'll go through each of them. Uh, does, do you think Prince has a chance to be a, a long-term starter quality player on the wing, or do you think he, he he's more of a rotation guy that, you know, still is a good pick for them at 12 to, to get a guy that can help them for a while, but maybe isn't a guy that you would look at and say that guy's definitely got a chance to be, you know, a starting wing on a good team. I think he can be. I think he can be a starter. I think that's sort of his ceiling, which is not a bad thing in the world. In the world, just because you know he's he's still young. He was sort of an older draft pick, but uh, there were some signs as as a rookie, even like he was playing real playoff minutes. Like he actually started playoff games last year. Yeah. Part of that was this, was nice for was, them was, too. Yeah, I mean, part of that was necessity, but this is—I mean, he's—he's he's a legit six eight. He's got the physical sort of stature that you want from a uh, from a real three. Uh, most of the Hawks, if not all of the Hawks' other wings, are these two three combo guys. Whereas Prince is really small forward size. They really haven't had that guy. Um, that can really match up with sort of the top tier, bigger, uh, your, your LeBron types, your Paul George types. They haven't really had that kind of physical match. Not that Prince is going to be on their level, but I think he could be a real three and D piece. That's a starter. I mean, I'm not. I don't really see the upside beyond that, but that's not a bad thing. There's only, I, I think, as, as our mutual friend Nate, Nate Duncan likes to say on his podcast, there's only ten or fifteen of those guys in the entire league that can yes. really play and function on both ends. I think he has a chance to be that. I'm not sure how quickly it's going to happen. You know, this year I would hope he'd be, be a trench starter because he finished last year as a starter, but. I do like Prince as a as a future starter. He might be your fourth fourth or fifth fourth or fifth, 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 fifth uh, sorry fourth or fifth best player on the on a good team. But at the same time, that's that's a really really valuable piece, especially on a rookie contract. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And and, and Bembry's a guy I watch a lot in the A10 going to St Bonaventure. I watch him play a lot for St Joe's, and I mean I, I thought he had a chance to be an interesting player in the league. He didn't do a lot last year when he did get a chance to play. Um, and he does have a, a tricep injury right now that's going to hold him out for probably most of training camp, not the beginning of the season. But uh, what, what are your hopes for him in terms of being able to, to show he can be at least a rotation player for them this season at some point? I've always liked him, too. I was hoping the Hawks would take him when they did. So that was a, sort of a positive for me. I've always liked his game. His, his basketball IQ is really high. He's a great passer. 
Um, the big thing is his jump shot. You know, he last year sort of famously didn't make a three until the last week of the season. Right. Uh, he was like, I think he was zero of eighteen at one point from three. That's a small sample size, but yeah, he's not a shooter. One for, finished one for eighteen for the season. Oh, there you go. I think yeah, yeah I think he might might have been over sixteen, something like that. But yeah, it was it was ugly uh, early on with his jumper. That was kind of to be expected. That was his one knock coming out of St. Joe's. That and his sort of age. But he's a good athlete. You saw him have a couple of highlight dunks in summer league. I think he can be a rotation piece. I think you know, barring the injury that you kind of said there, um, him missing a lot of training camp might hold him back a little bit early on but you know coming into the year i was expecting him to be, sort of be the fourth wing on this team which for most uh, you know boonholz is not a guy who's going to ride minutes a lot he's going to play four wings so i think memory is probably the fourth guy behind prince and kent Bazemore and uh, even marco bellinelli somewhere in that range so not not not, not the sexiest wing rotation in the world but i, I do like Bembry. i think he can be a rotation piece i'm not sure he can be a starter in the league just because he has a couple of limitations that are going to probably hold him back some but there's no reason if he can just become a passable shooter that he uh, can't be a rotation guy because i I still think he has some real talent, and I know the Hawks like his basketball IQ a lot. Yeah, that's always been the thing. Like you said, I've always liked about him too. He's a, he was always a smart, heady player, and I, I think you know long term, I, I do think he can at least become a guy that can you know create some shots on the wing. And like you said, if he can, he can develop a shot at all, he'll be he'll be an interesting piece. Now, the, the, there isn't a lot obviously to talk about this team in the short term. They they, they clearly are, are rebuilding for the long term, and and even their guys like. Dennis Schroeder that they have under contract for a while and Kent Bazemore. I mean, neither of those guys are guys that I'm overly excited about. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do some longer term stuff here to wrap this up. So first thing is, I think you even talked about this when you did the pod with Nate about the Hawks. What, what do you think realistically is the, the timeline for this team to get back to the playoffs? I mean, I think we both are pretty comfortable saying they're going to be one of the worst teams in the league this year. They're hoping to get a top pick to go get, you know, a, a stud to, to restart this thing. But I mean, what kind of a time frame do you think this is, uh, this is going to go on for, um, you know, for them to, to get back to being a, a, you know, a team that could consistently contend for the playoffs again? Yeah, it's it's sort of difficult because if you ask me uh, when is the earliest they make the playoffs, I'd probably say next year just because the East is so bad. Uh, if, <laughs> if something if something right. happened where they somehow won thirty seven games in twenty eighteen twenty nineteen, that would not blow me away at all. I, I will say though. I think they're prepared, at least that's the way that they've been treating their roster, in my opinion, to uh, have a more uh, sort of have a multiple year rebuild. It's not necessarily going to be a one year dip, I don't think. They do have three potential first round picks for this year, if uh, and I think they're probably likely first round picks because they have Minnesota's and Houston's first round picks for this year. Both, uh, but they're both lottery protected. But I think it's pretty safe to say that both those teams are going to be yeah, in the playoffs. Should, Maybe not should, Minnesota, you, but nah, Minnesota should. I mean, look, if they, they don't if they don't make it this year, then the curse is officially real at that point. I mean, they. Yeah. They they might it might not they might not win fifty some games like some people think but they I think it, I think like you said I think it's it's pretty hard to see them not getting th- both of those picks at least somewhere in the the back half of the first round yeah that that will help of course that's more of a long term play too because you know late first round picks aren't going to really help you win on the floor uh, the following season so I think in terms of just being like a, a consistent playoff team again you're looking at probably three years uh, I think they would hope that it only be three years you know some of these rebuilds uh, I think they are probably aware that it's going to be a perilous situation you have to hit on some picks you have to be smart uh, you know Schlenk coming from Golden State things obviously worked out very well there in a short period of time um, but at the same time like this roster as you kind of mentioned the best player on this team right now is Dennis Schroeder who I know you don't enjoy from conversations that we've had and i'm not the biggest fan either i think he's he's okay uh he, but he, if he's your best player you're in serious trouble yeah exactly he's he i i don't think he stinks but i i, I would say right. that i think he's fine and if and if and if a guy who's fine is pretty clearly your best player you're you're in real trouble 
and they know that. I'm pretty sure. I mean, they would never say that uh, publicly, but they, they they have to know that he can't be your foundational piece, and I'm pretty sure they're aware of that. So they're going to have to, as you said, like they have to get some top tier talent at some point, whether it be in the draft or if they can lure a free agent or something like that. They're going to they're going to have some flexibility. You know, Schlenk's whole motto has been to maintain flexibility and not take on bad contracts. Uh, you know, of course, he, he immediately did that with Miles Plumley, but <laughs> I think that was sort of a desperation situation. They just had to get Dwight off the team, and yes. that was uh, sort of the backdrop of that. So yes. I think uh, you know we. The rest, aside from that move, you saw them sign a lot of short-term contracts this summer. They want to be as uh, as clean as possible, and uh, we'll see if that, if that works. But I think, you know, in terms of being a, a, an established playoff team again, you're looking at probably three years, uh, and that's uh, my, that might be conservative unless they hit on some stuff. Well, it's crazy. You know, I, I did. Um, you know, I, I was I've been doing a bunch of these. You know, in these couple of days, even though this won't run for for uh, I think a week or two, but um, you know, and I was doing the the Phoenix Suns earlier today with Ben Golliver, and and we were just looking at it and. It's been seven years since they've made the playoffs, and they they too seem like they're probably three years away from being a bona fide for sure playoff team, and that's with a guy like Devin Booker on the roster who the Hawks don't even have. Now you are talking about Western Conference compared to the Eastern Conference, but still that is a that is a an example of how once you do get down towards the bottom of the league, you know, for all the talk that uh, that tanking is. Um, you know, at the, the scourge of the league and we need to get rid of this. I mean, it, it is pretty hard to build up from the bottom up. I mean, it, 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 you can be the Oklahoma City Thunder and hit on three or four picks in a row, but there's a lot more teams that you look and they're the, the Timberwolves or the Suns or the, um, or the, the Sixers have been out for a while. And you, like, you can go down the list and there's these teams that consistently are picking in the top 10 that, and the Kings, right, that just don't ever get out of that, out of that cycle. And they're just stuck there for a really long time. So yeah, I think the way you put it that that 3 years is kind of the best case scenario I think is accurate because you really need to um to hit on a you know a couple picks in a row to really launch yourself back into being a surefire, you know, playoff contender going this route. It would certainly be a longer timetable if they were in the West. I will say that uh, right. because of the fact right. that the, the bar is so much lower. So if you're, you know, your Phoenix is your Sacramento's, it's just so much more difficult out there. If you're the Hawks, you pretty much only have to jump I don't know, five or six teams. Well, look, that even are very, Orlando very has missed the playoffs five years in a row, right? And like they, like ever since Dwight left, they haven't made the playoffs, and they really haven't been close. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're right. That's absolutely. I mean, you have you have to hit uh, to a certain extent, and, I, and obviously, there's there's some peril, there's some real risk to bottoming out. Even though I, I was someone who was advocating for it. But oh at the yeah, same time, to be clear, I I don't think it's a bad strategy. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I'm just saying, like all I'm saying is for the people that uh, act like it's a foolproof plan, and that it's, it is not. It, it's not <laughs> right. It's not you. You, like you can lose all these games. Like look at Orlando, right? They've lost all these games, and they had how many top five picks? They drafted Mario Hazonia in the top five, Victor Oladipo in the top five, Aaron Gordon in the top five. I mean, I mean, you you go look. It's like okay, well, you know, those guys have had different levels of success, but they don't have one All Star out of five years of being terrible. I mean, that's and so and and they've all been pretty high picks. So that's all I'm saying. Like to me, I just I've always laughed at the people that act like this is. You know, a plan. You know, this is something that's ruining the league. When I, I think anybody who realistically looks at it, um, it, it's just very, it's it's very difficult to build that way. And, and if you're going to do it, you have to really make sure that you don't mess around and 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 hit a couple of those picks on on players that can really be difference makers. Otherwise, you get on this treadmill where you're just stuck and you don't ever. You know, it takes you maybe ten years to climb out of it instead of the three or four that you do if it works out okay. 
Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how fast they can turn this around. But I, I think they're patient. But, you know, there's only so many, so many times you can finish, you know, 29th or 30th in attendance before people start getting restless. And that, that's probably going to happen here, too. So it's going to be a, a test situation. I well, think, if it, doesn't well, it might even quickly. it might even be this year. Right. Because if they look the top five or six in this draft looks loaded. So after that, I'm not sure. So like, look, if they're, they are going to be in the running for being the worst team in the league. I mean, it's going to be them in Chicago and, you know, maybe the the Lakers will be down there somewhere. You know, Phoenix will be down there somewhere. The the Nets could be down there somewhere. Some of these other teams in the East, the Knicks, the Magic, the the Pacers could all stink. I think like it could be interesting, but if they do get in the top five this year, I think at least if you're going forward with a guy you think could be an all-star, it does change that timeline. Like if you look at Phoenix, right, you have Devin Booker. Um, at least then you can watch Devin Booker play, right? If you if right. you're the Magic and you have nobody re- that you really want to watch, then it's like, geez, I'm just banging my head against the wall. If you're a fan, uh, waiting to see if you get a guy next year that's worth watching. So you know, this year I think everybody can easily accept it's going to be tough. And then if they get a guy, say a Luka Doncic or a Marvin Bagley or a M- Michael Porter in the draft, then it's like, okay, we can watch this guy. And then it then it does kind of change the calculus a little bit. So um, yeah, it'll be. It'll be really interesting to see how it goes, but that does kind of dovetail into my last question for you, which is, you know, I I thought it kind of flew under the radar that, you know, because Atlanta is a little bit of an out of the way franchise and um, there was other stuff going on. I don't think it necessarily got enough attention that it should have that Mike Budenholzer said, yeah, you know what? I'm good being president of the team. You can, you know, you can, I'll give that back and I'll just coach. Uh, That's usually a bad sign for a coach. And even though I think a lot of people think Putin is a pretty good coach, I was curious in the wake of that happening and the, the, you know, bringing in Travis Schlenk as the GM, um, you know, what do you think the, uh, what do you think the chances are that, um, that this is Budenholzer's last year? And that even if not necessarily that he gets fired, but that he just doesn't want to sign up for this kind of a long-term rebuild. And, you know, at the end of the season, maybe there's a, a mutual agreeing of parting ways and he, he goes on to, to maybe coach somewhere else or, or do something different. Yeah, it's really tricky. I mean, you mentioned it. It's, it's sort of a weird situation because this is a guy who he assumed control after the Danny Ferry thing. He was the coach of the year. And now he sort of they painted it as, as if he sort of voluntarily did this. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure that's the case. I think it was at least in some ways mutual because just because it would have been very, very difficult to sort of mandate that out of him because he had so much control and he, and he makes a lot of money, et cetera. People don't um, generally but, give up power really in any right. situation uh, willingly. You know, maybe he it's did, very but weird. It's, it's not it's not the normal course of action, to say the least. No, it's it's not, and you know he's 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 done all the right things publicly. He's not been around publicly a lot either, which is sort of a weird thing. You know, all summer it was a lot of schlank, which you would expect because he's the new GM. But Bud was sort of pretty much in the background. He was at summer league, but not super available. It's uh gonna be very interesting to see. You know, media day is coming up as well, which will be you know his first public comments, like really public comments since the end of the season. So that'll be interesting to monitor. But it wouldn't blow me away if he wasn't back. I think uh, I'd be surprised if the Hawks were to fire him just because he is an established, you know, top 10 or 12 coach in the league. Uh, my thing would be maybe he's just not cut out to coach a rebuilding team because he's a guy who's always been, you know, he was on the Spurs bench forever and, and with the Hawks. When he when he arrived, they were a playoff team, and he was been you know they, they were a playoff team the whole way the whole time he's been here. So I'm I'm sure based on the way that he was operating uh, when he was sort of the front office head that he didn't want to rebuild. You know, coaches don't want to rebuild; they don't want to do this, especially when they were already at the head of a playoff team. So you know, I think he'll be around longer than a year if you had to, if, if I had to bet on it one way or the other. But it would certainly not surprise me if at the end of the season if, if they win 23 games, if he's uh, not long for this job because you know his contract's sort of fuzzy because. 
Again, they were paying him like he was doing the dual role, and he's no longer doing that. So I'm not sure what that looks like anymore. There's just a lot of uneasiness um, for a guy who I think is still a very, very good coach. But, uh, you know, it's tough to have that guy stick around necessarily. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's true. And it's certainly not the team he thought he was signing up for, you know. And uh, a lot a lot has happened since he got there and took the job. So uh, it's it's changed very much from when it was him and Danny Ferry. And now it's, you know, now it could be both of them gone in a week. So, yes. um so, uh, so yeah. All right, Brad, thanks for, thanks for coming by, man. Uh, but before you go, uh, let people know where they can find you on Twitter. And, uh, if you got anything coming out the first week of camp, uh, cause it'll come out probably second week. Um, you know, let people know what to, uh, what to expect. Yeah. I'm, I'm on Twitter at BT Roland. That's R O W L A N D. And I also host the, uh, the locked on Hawks podcast, uh, you know, five days a week on the Hawks. If you are a diehard, please check that out. If you're not, then, you know, subscribe and download, if nothing else. And uh, I also am the editor at Peachtree Hoops, the SB Nation Atlanta Hawks site. So if you are uh, in need of some Hawks content, nothing huge coming necessarily. You know, camp's going to be ramping up. So uh, for a rebuilding team, some a lot, a lot of draft stuff this year, too. I'm going to have my eye closely on uh, Luka Doncic and Marvin Bagley and those guys as well. So, you know, nothing huge. But, you know, I post everything on Twitter if you want to find me. Also, you know, National NBA stuff. I do some stuff over at, uh, at Dime Mag. Uh, so check that out as well. Yeah, check Brad out. He does some good work. So follow him on Twitter. Brad, thanks again for doing it, man. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Tim. All right, Rick. Thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, you, you know the Hornets as well as anybody. You've been following them for a long time. So it'll be good to talk to you about them. And it's it's been obviously a pretty interesting summer for them, you know, getting a guy like Dwight Howard who they – I, I believe they tried to sign last summer, if I remember correctly, getting him in a trade for basically a bag of balls from from the uh, from the Hawks uh, to take him on. You know what 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 is the expectation in Charlotte? You know, Steve Clifford, I know, worked with Dwight for a long time in Orlando, knows him well. Um, what what is the expectation for him now that he's on his now I think fifth team with the with the Hornets? You know, Tim, it, it's really interesting that somebody who. I mean, to me, it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. First and now he's playing on his, and he's now he's going to be, yeah, and now he's going to be on his third team in three seasons. You, he signs this massive contract with the Hawks, and he lasts all of one season with them. Right, and he gets traded for Miles Plumley's hideous contract. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's a definition that, of a bag of balls. If that doesn't qualify as a wake-up call, I don't know what will. And, you know, if I'm, I'm sure you have, like like I have, read Lee Jenkins' terrific story in Sports Illustrated this week. And, you know, if everything that he says is accurate, and by the way, he has said some of those, some similar things to, to me um, since the trade about how, you know, he is, re- he's very angry about perception. And, you know, to me, okay, great. You're the only person who can change that. Right. And if he is motivated, if he, and more, much more importantly than that, if he is coachable at this point. Right. And God, he pays an incredible amount of lip service to his relationship with Cliff, which does, in fact, go very ba- far back. Right. You know how Cliff operates, which is that he is the most transparent person, arguably, in this league. You know, you're always going to know where you stand with him. You may not like what he says, but what players have always said about him is, you know, he's going to tell you what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear, and you'll know what he really thinks. Well, it'll be interesting how this works out, because if 
you know, I mean, the guy has never failed to have a double-double every single season of his career. He is very much what they need. They, they, they relapsed really significantly on defense last season. They, they haven't had a rim protector since Biombo. Uh, if Dwight can be, you know, anything like what he was when he was an all-star here, it's going to be a, you know, it, it's got terrific potential because uh, not only because he can protect the rim and offer maybe some uh, post scoring and some pick and roll, but also I, in you know, I wrote about this um, this morning, the idea that Cody Zeller is going to be playing against the other team's backup centers. I think Cody's going to end up in the discussion for six man award. He is, this is going to be great for him. He has totally bought into it. He's embraced the idea because, you know, frankly, some nights he's given away as many as 50 pounds um, to the other guy's center. And so I think he's absolutely going to feast on um, the, the opposing team's backups. And that's really important because this team's bench last season was awful. Right. And, no, and that, I wanted to get to that because that, you know, the interesting thing about the Dwight trade is that, you know, really the, the Hornets were pretty good last year when Cody Zeller was healthy. And the, the 20 yes. games he missed, they, I think they went 3-17 and 17 and were dreadful. And, and it, it, you know, the fact that now they've, they've brought in Dwight, it, do, it did seem like he was going to be pushed to the bench. And, and I, I mean, I saw your story and I knew that was where this was headed. So, you know, we're, we're recording this a, a, probably about a, you know, a week or two before this is going to come out officially. But, you know, as, as we're on the eve of camp, what, what do you think the uh, – you know, the first and second unit look like at this point for Charlotte. Actually, you know, when I mentioned how transparent Steve was, I love this about him. He has a media luncheon two or three weeks before the start of camp every year. And I said to him, hey, do you in your mind know who the starters are? And he just rattled them off. In right. 30, 30 <laughs> reporters. I love that about him. Um, and, you know, part of the reason he does that, quite honestly, um, you know, he obviously worked for Stan Van Gundy. And they're, they're similar in the sense that they use they use honesty almost as a weapon. You know what I'm right. saying is they say ex- they say exactly what they think to 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 deal with issues before they become issues. And the reason I mentioned that is Steve, before anybody even asked him, said that it's that that this speculation that MKG should be be uh, come off the bench is not going to happen. That he needs them way too much defensively at the start of a game. So so let's go. Um, position by position, obviously Kemba's the starter at the point. Right. Um, Nick Batum will again start at at um, at shooting guard. MKG will start as a small forward. I, the the one that I would I thought might be more of an open competition is I thought that he because Marvin Williams did not have. Uh, as good a season last season as he did before he signed his contract. Right. I thought there might be more of an open competition between him and, and Frank Kaminsky. But the reason that Cliff said that he has already penciled in Marvin is because he thinks that Frank's skill set is more useful propping up the scoring in the second unit and that Marvin Marvin's a terrific traffic cop defensively and he likes the way they fit. And literally, you know, when they brought uh, when they brought uh, Dwight into market for that first press conference about a about a week after the the uh, the draft, um, he made it very clear up front that Dwight is going to start. You know, that's just sensible in this regard. Um, Cody is a very, very smart, sensible kid. He knows he's going to play starter minutes. He knows that this is effectively going to be a tag team thing. Right. And and he 
he kind of loves the idea that, you know, he's not going to get beaten up the way that he was last season. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I think you said it best. Like, as long, when you have a situation like that, the most important thing is to get everybody to buy in. And yeah. If you, you know, it's, it's obviously going to be easier to have Dwight buy in if he's starting. And if Cody's cool with coming off the bench and being a sixth man and playing alongside him a little bit and playing behind him, then, you know, that, that certainly makes it the best of both worlds for trying to get the most out of both those guys. And you know, Tim, as, you know, as well as, as I do, um, the way Dwight Dwight shoots free throws, Cody's going to play in the fourth quarter. I mean, right. it's just a given, right? right? No, yeah, no question at all. I mean, he's going to get and and Dwight will be sitting out some back to backs, and he'll. I mean, they'll they'll be like you said, there'll be plenty of opportunities for him to play a lot and get a lot of minutes. And I I think it's an interesting call about him him having a shot at six man votes. I mean, it could be. I think I could see that being a very similar thing to what happened with Greg Monroe last year when he finished third. I mean, I that's an excellent similar, analogy. Yeah, I think it's a very similar situation. Now you mentioned. You mentioned Kemba before. He had a terrific year last year, made the All-Star team for the first time. Do you do you think there's another level he can get to, or is he is do you think he's kind of plateaued in terms of the amount of development he can make in his game? That's a really interesting question in the sense that one of the things that Steve adores about Kemba is how seriously he takes the offseason. Um I mean, you want, you know, I know that it's it's almost a cliche in this league that the one thing that players can really improve about their game after they become pros is shooting. But Kemba's improvement as a shooter, particularly, you know, outside the three-point line has been stunning the last right. two seasons. And it, and 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 you know how much that has changed things beyond just the shooting. You know that what I'm saying is he it you can the book on him was it was so easy to go under a screen and take away what makes him special off the dribble. Can't do that anymore. Right. Um, so when you ask me that question, do I think there's another level? I think he's pretty close to his ceiling, but having said that, um, Kemba is so in a, in almost a Steph Curry kind of way. He takes his summers so seriously that if there's more to sap out of his talent, He'll figure out a way to do that. He's he's that serious about his profession. Yeah, no, there, there's. I mean, I've known Kemba, you know, at least covered him since he was yeah. at UConn, and there's, uh, there's, you know, there's few guys who have maximized their gifts more than him. So uh, it's hard to it's hard to argue with that. Um, and you know, as speaking of you know small scoring guards, you know Malik Monk, a guy that you know was thought to maybe be a guy who'd be comfortably in the top ten, he ends up falling to the Hornets at uh, I believe the eleventh <laughs> pick in the draft, and. You know, then really hasn't done anything since because of this ankle injury that's just seemed to drag on and on and on. So what what is the the current situation with him health wise? And, and assuming he gets healthy, what what are the Hornets expecting from him this season? Uh, Tim, he was out. You remember he he got no summer league, and and you know that um, you know summer league in some ways is kind of a joke, but it's really important to rookies who have a chance to get into the rotation. You know, it's 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 comparable to what. You know, everything that goes on with the NFL with, you know, with OTAs and that sort of stuff. So he has ha- he lost all that. And he also lost an awful lot of sort of one on one, you know, teaching time with the coaches this summer as far as being able to do things physically. Uh, Cliff acknowledged at that press luncheon that um, he is not in the kind of tip top condition right now that you, you know, that you would like him to be going into camp because of the circumstances. Uh, the other thing, honestly, Tim, is, as you said, I mean, he's six foot three as a shooting guard. That is not ideal, particularly for somebody who did not demonstrate a whole, you know, 
a particular tenacity on defense in his one college season. Um, there's an interesting dynamic here with Clifford in that Michael ha- you know, has gone out of his way as owner to tell Clifford, nobody is going to tell you who to play. Ever. Right, right. Cliff has incredible autonomy as far as distributing minutes. There's nobody looking over his shoulder telling him he has to play X or has to play Y. Um, I guarantee you that Malik is aware of that. <laughs> that right. uh, I guarantee that he understands that being the 11th pick is not going to automatically put him, put him on the court that he's going to have to earn it like everybody else. Um, but you know something, as we were mentioning earlier, you know, this team's, this team's second unit struggled terribly um, to, to score last season. And he is, you know, the thing I've noticed about him is, you know, he's, he was kind of pigeonholed as just a shooter and he's dramatically, you know, the, I was talking to Cody Zeller about this the other day. Cody said that just in the four or five times that he's been in, in pickup games with him over, over at Spectrum Center, He's a very good all-around basketball player. He makes good decisions when the ball's in his hand. Um, he pointed out to me last week that um, it's funny that people now perceive him as just a guy who can play off the ball because last season at Kentucky was literally the only time since he was eight years old that he has not been a team's point guard. Uh, Cliff is intrigued by that. What they wanted to do in Orlando was – um, was have him play some point to see if he could handle it. I'm guessing we're going to see some of that sort of experimentation in the preseason. And if he can, you know, that 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 could be a way to get him on the court because I, I would think that you would agree with me, Kemba and Malik are going to be a challenge to play together at the defensive end. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, those guys are both small. Malik isn't much of a defender anyway. I mean, I, I think I think the best comparison for him is a maybe a Jamal Crawford type without necessarily as good of a handle, which is a guy that's going to score a lot for you, but isn't necessarily going to stop people from scoring. So, you know, playing him next to playing him next to Kemba would certainly be a rocky uh, rocky defensive potential. And by the way, that that is another indication. It's not a coincidence that their two backup point guards are both six foot six in, in right. Michael Carter Williams and Jalen Stone or uh, Julian Stone. They very, I mean, the, the Cliff's uh, analogy to this was what the Sixers used to have to do with Allen Iverson to have, you know, to have Eric, Eric size compensate for what, you know, Allen couldn't do when he was off the ball. Um, there is no question that that's why they went in the direction they did with those two backup point guards. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're definitely right about that. So, last thing I wanted to ask you is about the the, the coach and front office situation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Steve Clifford and, and Rich Show, I think, are both in the final year of the contract. I'm not sure about I'm not sure about Steve. I'm I'm pretty positive that this is Rich's last year. What is the uh, given given where where Charlotte is at? It's you know it's been kind of an up and down run the last couple of years. What what is the do you think the long term outlook for both of those guys in Charlotte? Um. I'll put it this way. I think that what you saw as far as, um, Tim, there's one thing I absolutely know. There was next to no interest around the league when the Hawks made sure to let all other 29 teams know he was available. The Hornets were the team that was willing to take that flying leap. Right. That should say an awful lot about, you know, the urgency to make some kind of a splash right here and right now. Right. Right. Um, it will be interesting. I, if, 
if things don't go well this season, I could certainly see it. You know, I could certainly imagine a change in the front office. I would guess that Steve Clifford has um, has a longer um, rope in that regard because you know I don't. You know, I think he is so universally respected in the organization as no really knowing how to be a head coach. Um, but you know, if 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 things go seriously south, it would not shock me if Jordan, you know, came to the conclusion that he just needs to really start over because, you know, at the end of the day, they have never won a round of the playoffs here, and they've only made the playoffs twice. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's what I'm saying is they've got to start showing to miss, some progress. Right. And there's not gonna be an excuse to miss the playoffs this year with uh with the bottom with the, East, the way it is. I mean they're definitely the, they definitely should be one of the eight teams that makes the playoffs at the end of the season. I think the regression is significant. Would 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 you I'm curious if you agree with me. Um after Cleveland and Boston, and I and I'm not implying that the that the Wizards or the Bucks don't maybe have more talent than other teams. Mm-hmm. But I, at the end of the day, it wouldn't shock me if you threw the other, you know, six other teams in, in you know, into a into a bucket and threw, you know, and threw them on a desk that those names might line up in almost any way. Would you agree? I, I actually would say it's a little different than that. I think. Okay. I think that uh, I think certainly from five down, I think to me there's pretty eight pretty clear teams that are going to make the playoffs: Boston and Cleveland, Washington, Milwaukee, Toronto, Detroit. Charlotte and Miami. I think those are, to me, those eight teams are pretty clear cut above the rest um, in terms of, you know, most likely projection to make the playoffs. Now, I think Boston could actually be worse than people think. Uh, I think the Kyrie situation could be interesting. He's never had a year as good as Isaiah Thomas. He could be, he's always had injury issues. Uh, they have some weird roster stuff. Al Horford and Aaron Baines are really their only two big, so they could have some issues there. Uh, I could see Cleveland not caring at all about the regular season and maybe not winning nearly as many games as people think. So I, I think some of the stuff up there could be iffy, but I, I do think, you know, if those top – I think that Milwaukee and, and, and Washington are probably in the top four, but I think five through eight especially, like I could really see that mm-hmm. going in any order because I think all those teams are roughly, you know, 40 – three to 47 win teams if they're healthy and, and things work out. Okay. But look, the gap to your point though, the gap between those teams at the top and those teams at the bottom is not significant enough that if they don't have a couple injuries, I mean, Markeith Morris just had is having surgery. He's probably going to miss a month or so. I mean, at, you know, or at least a month, I should say, Um, you know, if a couple of these teams have some injuries, I I don't think it's crazy to say that one of those teams in the bottom half could finish, you know, second or third, if everything breaks, right? Yes. And just to bring that back, what you just said back to the, Hornets for for a final minute. Um, Michael Jordan has said that his intermediate goal for this team, and he said this for three years now, is that there is a huge difference between being the fourth seed and being five through eight. That he he sees progress. The definition of progress being hosting the first round. And I don't know that that's going to happen. But I also don't think it's 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 it would be wild to picture the Hornets um, being having home court in a four or five series. Would you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's possible. Um, I, I think for that to happen to me, they need, they need 
the the version of Dwight from a couple of years ago to come yeah. back. Which and they need somebody else to get unlucky with injuries. I agree. Yes, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's crazy either, but I would say I think it's more likely they they settle into six to eight. I think is probably mm-hmm. the more. And look, then like you know, at that point, you know, it, it's probably going to come down to a matchup situation for how far they get. But um, but yeah, I think it, it certainly isn't. It isn't. Uh, closed off enough that they don't have a chance to go higher. So it'll look, there's, there's going to be a lot to watch. There's obviously a lot ride on the season in Charlotte uh, from both the, the management side, like you said, and for Dwight and others. So it'll be interesting to watch, but I appreciate the time, Rick. And, uh, you know, before you go, um, this, like I said, this is probably going to run in a couple of weeks. So uh, let people know where they can follow you on Twitter. And if you have anything planned for, say, the opening week of training camp, uh, let people know what they uh, should go back and take a look at. Oh, well, thank you. Um, the the uh, the Twitter handle is at Rick underscore Bonnell B O N N E L L. Um, I actually, you know, I'm doing I'm doing several things, some of them not involving the Hornets. That's going to be really interesting. Unfortunately, it's not something I can really talk about. But I'm working on a story actually uh, on the subject of domestic abuse, and I well I can't go into detail with it. If it, you know, when and if it runs, it's, I guarantee it's going to draw a whole lot of eyes. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading that. So thank, uh, that'll be, uh, that'll be a good read. I'm looking forward to checking it out. So thank, thanks again for the time, man. And I'll look forward to seeing you down the road. Okay, good. All right, Manny, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, and you just left the jersey unveiling for the for the Heat, so thanks for making some time. Uh, Anytime. Interesting interesting summer for the Heat. You know, a team that's always swung for big fish and free agency. Tried to get Gordon Hayward, didn't work. Um, and then it tried to get Blake Griffin. He didn't really even entertain anything. And then they, they basically just re-upped their, their team from last year on a bunch of four-year deals and added uh, Kelly Olenek. So what was kind of your take on – on the way uh, on, on the way their summer played out, and why do you think they took this path? Well, I think if if you talk to Pat Riley, you, you get the sense that this was about keeping your assets around and, and keeping guys that maybe aren't superstars or even all stars, but guys that are good players. And and Pat has shown in the past that he's able to pull together a group of good players and and trade them to get a superstar in return. And I think in the end, that's really the end game here. Uh, you look at how much they paid for James Johnson, Deion Waiters, Kelly Olynyk. Those guys are all, you know, good rotation players on any team. And and I think uh, Riley's end game is to find a disgruntled superstar, somebody like uh, DeMarcus Cousins uh, was last year, uh, who, who may be in a bad situation, so that you can you can pull some of these these guys together that are under affordable contracts in today's NBA, and and potentially acquire a superstar in return. If that doesn't happen, I think plan B is to just put as much talent around Hassan Whiteside and Goran Dragic as possible. And really, once Gordon Hayward, uh, you know, went to the Celtics, uh, this was plan B. And that's ultimately what Riley went with. Let's keep James Johnson. Let's keep Deion Waiters. Let's keep this core together that went 30 and 11 over the second half of the season. And let's see what they can do. And if and if a big fish pops up on the screen down the road. Well, these contracts are, are, are easy for some other teams to swallow, and maybe we can package some guys together and get and get a superstar in return. So, so let me, I was going to ask you this later, but let me jump to it now. Which half of last season do you think was real? The the the, the thirty and eleven second half, or the eleven and thirty first half, or I guess more accurate, I guess which which do you think was closer to real? Well, you know, it's it's a great question, and and that's going to be the burning question going into the season. But I think a better way to look at it is. Uh, look at this team with Deion Waiters 
and without Dion Waiters, and and they were twenty seven and nineteen with Dion Waiters, and and I'll tell you with the weapons that they have, the three point shooting that they have, you need two guys who can penetrate, not just go on Dragic. You need a second guy like Dion Waiters was for them last season who can penetrate and kick to to the Wayne Ellingtons of the world and kick kick out to Goran Dragic or somebody else who's open on the perimeter. That's when the Heat were at their best last season. So I think, you know, you can sit here and say, are they the first half team or, the, or are they the second half team? I think it doesn't matter. I think when Dion Waiters and Goran Dragic are at their best, this Heat team is a team that can be 8 to 10 wins over 500. And, and one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference uh, competing uh, for a, you know, four, five, six seed in the East. Yeah, no, I think I, I have a feeling that's probably where they're going to be, if not maybe a little bit lower than that. But I definitely think they're a clear playoff team uh, after after last year. One guy that, um, that, that wasn't a part of most of that last year was Justice Winslow. We missed most of the season with a shoulder injury. I saw him modeling those jerseys today, so I – I know that you uh, you guys saw him at least. Uh, what mm-hmm. what is the uh, what is the the prognosis on him being ready for camp and and what are the Heat expecting from him? Or what I think is a pretty big third year for him. Yeah, it is a huge year for Justice Winslow. Uh, you saw that they just extended Josh Richardson uh, on a four year, forty two million dollar contract, and and Josh was of course a second round pick the same year that Justice w- was drafted, and so I, I think they 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 like what they have in both of those players. Ultimately, though, one of those guys has to emerge and be your starting small forward. And so I think the hope is that Justice will be that guy. Uh, we know about some of the, the uh, potential trades that he could have made with that draft pick a couple years ago. Supposedly, the Celtics uh, offered as many as six picks for that 10th pick because they liked Winslow so much. Um, you know, I think what the Heat wants out of Justice Winslow is for him to be able to hit the outside shot consistently. Obviously, you look at his shooting percentage um, before he was hurt and, and only played in, 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 in a, you know, maybe 18, 19 games last year. Uh, it wasn't good. And, and, he, and that's after he had spent so much time in the offseason working on his shot. Um, you know, part of that was because he played injured for a while and ultimately decided to have the shoulder surgery. But he's coming back healthy right now. There's no issues with the shoulder whatsoever. He's actually been healthy now for, for, for a couple months, been working out with his teammates. And so I, I think the Heat just want to see that the Justice Winslow they drafted, the guy that they envisioned, uh, you know, once he was in his third, fourth year in the league, that he could start games, that he could hit the perimeter shot and be one of the elite defenders in the league. If he is all those things this coming season, then I think the Heat are going to be a pretty good team. Yeah, I think I think they've certainly got uh, a chance to do that. You know, at center, the Heat have got a couple of interesting guys in Hassan Whiteside and Bam Adebayo. You know, Whiteside they obviously gave a big contract to last summer, um, and Bam they drafted with their first round pick. What what do you see them looking for from both of those guys this year? Well, I think this year they're looking for Hassan to be an All Star. You know, they, they they look at what he's done, what, what he did particularly over the second half of last season, winning the rebounding title, what he did a year ago, leading the league in blocks. I know some people have looked at some of Hassan's defensive numbers and say, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit too much credit for what he does. But he really is such an integral piece to what, what they do defensively uh, from, from from a standpoint of, of switching and, and guys just being able to run out and guard shooters. When Hassan Whiteside is at his best, he is definitely one of the best defenders in the league because of how much he helps the Heat do what they want to do. So I think it's getting Hassan's offensive game to elevate even more, to be more of a consistent option. If you look at the second half of last season, his scoring numbers went down a little bit, and obviously the team had more success with him scoring less. But I think it's the defensive side and and, and being the guy who every single night you count on. You don't have those off nights. As far as Bam Adebayo is concerned, 
you know, this is a guy who Pat Riley really likes a lot, and, and he talked about it shortly after they drafted him. He sort of compared him to Sean Kemp, that that's the, the first vision that he had when he saw Bam Adebayo. I don't know if Bam Adebayo is going to beat Sean Kemp, but I, I really like what he, his, his raw abilities. Watching him in summer league, the way that he uh, is able to, to handle the ball, dribble it up the court. Uh, he, did a, he did a Euro step for a layup uh, that opened my eyes. I didn't know he had that as part of his Yeah, I saw that so. too, and I definitely didn't expect <laughs> him to see that either. I, I didn't expect him to be no. the ball and stuff. No, he showed off some skills. I mean, he's such a young, raw, uh, raw talent. I think right now all the Heat really want him to do is sort of replace Willie Reed and, and Willie Reed was very effective last year for the Heat coming off the bench and, and, and even starting a couple times in place of Hassan Whiteside. I think what they want is 10 to 15 minutes a game out of BAM, just rebound the ball, score in the paint, be an effective scorer in the paint. If he does those things, then, then he'll be a part of this rotation. Right. And, and speaking of that, the last thing I want to wrap up with, the, the Heat have kind of an interesting roster, a bunch of guys, uh, a bunch of guys that compete for minutes in different spots. What do you, what do you think their, their first and second units look like right now? Well, I think going into camp, obviously, Goron and Dion are your, are your starting backcourt. Uh, those are the two guys that, that they're going to rely on so much for, for playmaking and setting up their shooters. Um, you know, you pay James Johnson a lot of money. He was such an integral part of this team's second-half success last year. I think he's got to be your starting power forward. And then, obviously, you have Hassan Whiteside at center. The position of interest is, is small forward. Do you go with Justice Winslow or do you go with Josh Richardson, who, you know, is 6'6", 200 pounds? Um, kind of reminds me of Eddie Jones. It's the way I've always sort of viewed his game, a 3 and D type of guy. Um, and I think it's going to come down to that. Can Justice score consistently to be your starting small forward? Or do you do you go with Josh Richardson, who's a little bit more polished on that side and can hit the three-point shot and help you spread the floor? Ultimately, last year, you look at what, what Spolster did. He had Luke Babbitt start a bunch of games. Even though Luke Babbitt um, didn't play a lot of minutes, he started because he helped stretch the floor to open the game. So I, I think if Justice doesn't show that improved touch, you got to go with Josh Richardson because he will – Helps stretch the floor. People do have to respect his three-point game. Yeah, no, that'll be that'll be a really interesting thing to watch. I'm sure the I'm sure the Heat would love for Winslow to be that guy, but in, if if he's not, that's probably a, like you said before for what this season is going to be for him. That's probably a bad sign. Yeah, and and I think you know as far as the reserve is concerned, I mean this is a deep team. You you got a deep backcourt. You got Tyler Johnson, who sort of a combo guard. He can run the point for you know several possessions for you. Um, obviously I mentioned Richardson earlier, you got Wayne Ellington who had one of his, the best seasons of his career last year was in phenomenal shape. Um, and, and was just an effective three point shooter over the second half of the season last year. He, he'll, he's back. Um, and then, you know, obviously you got a who, who you paid some money to, to come and, and I think he's going to be the first big off the bench, um, every single night. Um, you know, probably even before Bam Adebayo steps on the floor. So, you know, th- that to me is ultimately the rotation. I think guys like Rodney Magruder and Okara White uh, will stick around to be, you know, key reserves. I know Magruder played a lot last year, started several games at the small forward spot. But, you know, Spolstra said it all along last year. If the team was healthy, if Justice Winslow was healthy, Magruder would be a guy who you'd bring in for basically defense and, f- and for some three-point shooting when you needed it. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. So, all right, Manny, uh, I'll let you run, man. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, before you go, this is going to run in a in a week or so. So, um, you know, if you can, uh, let people know where they can follow you on on social media. And uh, if you got anything yeah. coming out, say the first week of camp, you want to plug, go for it. Well, I mean, starting uh, Monday, I mean, I'm going to be at camp every single day. We got media day on um, on Monday, and so I'll be out there, and, and people can follow me on Twitter 
at Manny underscore Navarro. And, and uh, as far as, uh, you know, our daily coverage, Barry Jackson does a, a ton of stuff as well. Uh, you know, that people can follow him at uh, FLA Sports Buzz. Uh, on Twitter as well. We always tweet out all of our stories. There's so much stuff all the time uh, between video, tweets, um, stories. I mean, uh, all of that will be there on MiamiHerald.com, and hopefully uh, Heat fans will follow us all year long. All right, man. I'm sure they will. Thanks a lot again for doing this, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast and are interested in learning more about the NBA, you can get my weekly NBA newsletter, the Monday Morning Post-Up, delivered right to your inbox every Monday morning at 8 a.m. To do so, please go to wapo.st slash postupnewsletter to subscribe. You'll get an original column from me, links to my work from the past week, links to work from both my colleagues at the Washington Post and other writers from around the web about the league, a viewing guide for the week ahead, and some dining and pop culture recommendations. Again, to subscribe to the Monday Morning Post-Up, please go to wapo.st slash post-up newsletter and start your week off right with everything you need to know about the NBA. All right, Danny, thanks for uh, for pinch it and doing this. I appreciate it. I, I, I knew you I listened to the uh, the excellent pod you did with Nate on the uh, on the magic and figured I would I would have you fill in here and uh, and, and join me on them. So so appreciate having you on and appreciate you doing it. Yeah, fun to be deputized with the magic, a team that I've actually been thinking about a lot more when when Nate asked me to do that one. I had, you know, kind of you you think about everybody, as you know, but then the magic became a much more interesting team the more I thought about them. All right. Well, let's let's just get into that then. It, what 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 stands out to you is the most interesting thing about them uh, as a team that I think for a lot of people is kind of off the radar in a, in a lot of respects at this point. Well, so there are kind of two things. One is this is a definitional year for them. So really, how good is this core? Because whether they sign extensions or they go into free agency, the Magic are really close to having to decide on Alfred Payton and Aaron Gordon. So that's a part of it. And then the other thing is with Frank Vogel. I mean, Vogel last year. I'm sympathetic to the complications with kind of inheriting a team that was a little bit of a jumbled mess in terms of personnel. But, you know, now they've he's had a year to figure out who's good. They've changed around the front office, changed around some of the players. And so what is he going to prioritize with a couple of key decisions in the starting lineup? Well, and that, that's kind of where I was going to start, because this this team has got kind of an amalgam of pieces that don't necessarily make a lot of sense. And and to me, what they do in their starting lineup is really interesting. So so from your standpoint, what, what do you think would make the most sense and what do you think they'll wind up doing? To me, there are only three guys that are effectively locked into their starting five. That would be Peyton, Evan Fournier, and Aaron Gordon. And so then you're just thinking about the other two spots. I, I'm pretty comfortable saying Gordon should and will play the four. So then that means you want a center and pretty much a, a small forward. You can argue about definitions with that. I don't care as much. But really, so you have a choice kind of between a more offensive guy and a defensive guy at both spots. So at the other wing spot, you can either go with Terrence Ross, who's I think of as more of a six-man skill set, you know, can shoot the ball pretty well. Defense comes and goes. Certainly athletic, you know, dunk contest competitor. I believe dunk contest winner back in the yeah. day. And Jonathan Simmons, who I have liked, but of course starting is very different than than anything that he's really done with regularity. He came on the scene two years ago in summer league, so this would be a big jump for him. And then on the other side, on the, on the center spot, you have the more extremes of that with Bismack Biombo and Nick Vucevic. Biombo is 
so limited offensively other than setting screens and setting and grabbing offensive rebounds from time to time. And Vucevic has, you know, he has his moments defensively, but he's pretty much an offense guy. So what, what do you think they should do? I think that when you have Evan Fournier at one starting spot, you should go defense with the other one because you want somebody who can defend those wings, at least at bare minimum in the games where you're playing Giannis or LeBron or Kawhi Durant. You know, there are a lot of good small forwards in the league right now. So you want to have somebody for that. And I know that coaches want continuity, so might as well keep the same starting five. And then defensively, I think that, especially if you're going to start Simmons, you're more open to Vucevic. I think that they should aspire to having Biombo be ready to take that spot. But my assumption right now is that if he plays as poorly as he did last year, that Vucevic should be start out camp as the leader and that he can be overtaken, but he has to be overtaken. Yeah, I think that's probably the way that it goes. I, I would guess given, given that the, uh, the, the new regime is the one that signed Simmons, I would think he's probably got the inline inside track to starting. And, and, and I, I would say that, uh, I, I would think you're right about Vucevic. I, I think that, that he'll start at, at least um, in the short term, if for no other reason that they might hope that they can maybe boost his trade value since it's probably easier, even though he's maybe a tougher fit in today's NBA if they both are playing at their best uh, to trade. I, I think his salary being a little lower might make it a little more palatable to move on from him. And since you know this front office came in with you know virtually this entire roster, not as not of guys they they brought in except for him, except for really Simmons and Jonathan Isaac and a couple of smaller pieces. I wouldn't be surprised if they're, they're really not that wedded to, uh, to anybody on this team at this point. Yeah. And that's one of the challenges with the magic is that they don't really have guys on value contracts. So if they are unhappy with somebody, are they going to be willing to attach something to move him? I mean, I'm sure they're hoping that a team just falls in love with Nikola Vucevic and says, hey, we want him. But I just think that's unlikely when you consider what centers we're getting in the market. I mean, Dwayne Dedman is a very different player, but Dedman is on a much more team-friendly contract than Vucevic and I think was significantly better last year. Yeah, no question. No question. And, and, and look, in today's Vucevic is like many of these guys in today's modern NBA, whether it's Jonas Valanciunas or uh, Greg Monroe or Ennis Canner. I mean, uh, a, a lot of these guys who are kind of offense first, you know, not much on defense bigs or they're just kind of slowly, you know, being, uh, you know, turned into dinosaurs in the league, no matter how skilled they are. All those guys are skilled in different ways. Um, it, it, it makes it tough for them to to really be. Uh, impact guys unless they're they're kind of energy guys off the bench with like Canner and Monroe have kind of settled into that role whereas you know Valanciunas and, and Vucevic both are, are starting or starters at this point at least have been and and that's been a bigger struggle for them to to make it work right and again you, this is a story with the new front office and just kind of how they're approaching it and also maybe looking at Biombo and Vucevic with with fresher eyes you know the idea that last season I would say both of them were disappointing to varying degrees so they were of course aware of that you know it's as they were uh, basically everybody in their front office was involved on an eastern conference team I'm sure they studied and watched the magic fairly frequently but how they approach that and also what their vision is for the team I mean remember that I don't know how much of a hand John Hammond's going to have in this but he has looked for something a little bit different from centers than either of these guys provides. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think you're probably right about that. So let, let's get to the two young guys. You I mean you mentioned that that Fournier is locked into the the starting lineup. We'll get to him in a minute. And I'd agree with you there. So then uh, the other two guys are Alfred Payton and Aaron Gordon, both of whom are up for contract extensions this fall. 
and are, you know, especially given the fact that the old regime drafted them, they've had, you know, they're kind of interesting fits with the way that the modern NBA is going. Um, you know, Peyton has been up and down as a shooter, obviously. And Gordon has, you know, I think we both agree played out of position for our, played at the wrong position for a lot of his career so far. Um, what do you think the chances are that either of them uh, agree to extensions this uh, this fall? And, and, and how what are you looking for from both of them this season when, you know, both of them, whether they sign or not, are going to really have a microscope on them as they're, they're working under a new regime for the first time? Yeah, there are a lot of things to consider when it comes to those two players. Maybe the most notable of which is that Orlando doesn't have a lot of salary flexibility either way. So they have these commitments, 17 million exactly for Fournier and Biombo each for next season for 1819 and money for Vucevic and everything else. So they're basically at or around the, probably over the cap, even with those guys, you know, on their current holds. So it's not like they're sacrificing much in flexibility to resign them. But the biggest issue is I'm not sure the new front office knows exactly how they're going to value them. So a big question with these guys in the entire league is how risk averse it used to be how risk averse are the teams. Now I think it's how risk averse are players because they should be seeing what happened in the open market and just realizing that not only are there fewer teams that have money, but the restricted process has not been fixed and the teams can hold that over them. Now, the problem with all of that is that, you know, if Peyton and Gordon establish themselves as starter and caliber players, those guys all pretty much always get paid. Like, I mean, we saw Tim Hardaway Jr., who I wouldn't say established himself as a starter caliber player. He got paid. And Nerlens, I think he just had a higher aspiration for what he wanted. And so he could have gotten paid starter money. He just wanted a lot more than that. And I understand that. So what I would say for Alfred Peyton, it's can he reproduce what he did over the last two months of the season? I mean, he was pretty good at the end of last year on a team that really had nothing to play for. And so if he can continue that, even if his jump shot doesn't come all the way around, he looked more comfortable for mid-range. And then for Aaron Gordon, I think what we need to see from him is really what his calling card is going to be in the NBA besides athleticism. Certainly a great athlete and underrated as a skilled player, but he doesn't have that go-to thing. You know, he's not a, a great one-on-one scorer at the three. He might be at the four, not a dominant help defender or anything like that. So what is he going to do that you can kind of pencil that in game in, game out? Yeah, I mean, Gordon especially. I mean, you look at him, and he's always been an athletic toolbox, and you you think that it, it, he's got the chance to really put it together. And I know, you know, Frank Vogel came in last year saying they wanted to play him like Paul George put the ball in his hands and have him play the, the three, and that clearly didn't work. But it, his numbers did jump up, like you said, with Peyton. His numbers jumped up, too, after the All-Star break when they had traded Serge Ibaka, and they played him a lot more at the four. And, you know, you look at him, and he's a guy that if he can, if he can make it work as a four – you know, that, that changes a lot of, you know, the potential issues with his shooting. It allows them to have him out there with a guy like Simmons or, um, or Ross, both of whom are, are de- at least decent. And Ross, case, is a good three-point shooter that can, you know, give more spacing on the floor. Um, so, you know, he's a guy that, you know, of all the guys on this roster, he's the one guy that if he does manage to figure it out, he's a guy that you could see really be, you know, uh, become a, a kind of a, a franchise centerpiece that, that maybe nobody else on the roster is really capable of being if it, does, if it works out right. He could be, but I think we're going to need to see some real development from him from a skill perspective because 
the world is of the NBA is kind of littered with these power forwards who are intriguing, but don't really do anything in, in particular, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of, there, there are guys like that. And so eventually you need to develop strengths. I mean, I I would give a lot of credit to like Paul Millsap. I think he's gotten way beyond that defensively. And then offensively he's had his, his really strong moments. And so he needs, whether that shooting, you know, being able to handle the ball, just being a terror in transition, weak side defense, I think, could actually be a really good one for him. And that's something Frank Vogel could really help out with. And the other big potential there is if maybe he can actually defend small forwards. I mean, maybe you want to play him with more of a floor spacer. So you do something a little bit different than what Vogel did last year. But if he can capably defend those bigger wings that I was was talking about, Jonathan Simmons needs to be in the starting line to defend those guys. If he can do that, you can find a guy who's six, nine, six, 10, who shoots jump shots. That's not a problem. Not a problem whatsoever. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that it really, it really does change the game in a lot of, uh, in a lot of respects. I mean, it, it would, it, and, and when I, when I said that about Gordon, I, I agree with you. He's got a lot to, he's got a lot to improve on to get to that point. It's just more that when you look at this team up and down, he is the one guy that if it does ever click, I mean, you could, you could see why he was a top pick in the first place. Like he does have all the, the tools to be, you know, a Sean Marion type player. If it all comes together where, like you said, you have that guy that can defend, you know, multiple spots at that size that, that really does give you a chance to do a lot of unique things with it, uh, that a lot of other guys can't do. That feels like a natural lead into Jonathan Isaac, who I think has some of that same upside as a defensive player. And maybe even a, I would say he has a higher upside than that. Yeah. What What is your, you know, I know, I know you and Nate were both pretty high on him going into the draft process. Um, what, you know, what is kind of your, your read on his game and, and how much do you, do you think he should be expected to do this season as a rookie? Isaac is his most natural fit is really as a support player. And I mean that in the best way possible. So he is, offensively a player who can, you know, I don't think he's going to be high usage. He played on this weird Florida state team where everybody kind of shot the ball a fair, fairly even amount. So he didn't really get to shine that way. Dwayne Bacon ended up, he's on the Hornets, but you know, other than that, they're still figuring the, like how, how that team was as an NBA team, but he can shoot threes reasonably well, especially if he's playing the true big man positions and he's athletic enough. And I like his defensive instincts that he might be able to switch reasonably well as an NBA player. And I like him as a defender, maybe at the four, the five is you know in weak side and help circumstances and then the big question with him is who who is he best defending who can he defend and then how does that work for the rest of the team because the idea that i've been truly fascinated with is the possibility i think it would take a year or two for him to get stronger to make this happen but the idea that isaac can primarily defend centers and then aaron gordon can defend power forwards because then all of a sudden, they're the team's collective spacing issues, even if they don't, they have to figure out point guard because, you know, Peyton will have to figure that out. But if you can play those guys at the four and the five, you're going to have an athleticism advantage. And all of a sudden, Gordon's limited shooting becomes less of a factor because Isaac is, I think he's meaningfully better than average as a three-point shooter if he plays center. If he's a power forward or a three, then that gets dicier, just like it does for Aaron Gordon. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. I think if he if he can bulk up enough you know, kind of in a similar, not that they're the same player, but kind of in a similar mold to Thon Maker. I mean, if he can, if he can bulk up enough to where he can hold up for the most part as a five, that, that really does change a lot of things. Because then, like you said, if you could, if you could theoretically have a front line of him and Gordon, I mean, not only is that a really athletic front line, you know, but th- that does, it does give you the ability to do a lot of unique things uh, defensively that, um, that a lot of teams would really, really struggle to, uh, to cope with. You know, especially in today's NBA, where teams are trying to play smaller and uh, and and move things around. I mean, if you could have a front line like that, I mean, all of a sudden you've 
you got the potential to really do some interesting things. Right. And that ties in with an idea that I think might be a little bit underappreciated over around the league, which is the reason you want to slide a guy. If you want to call it down to position, up position, I've never been sure on the tech, on the, on the terminology, but if you want to make a guy basically the larger spot. So with Isaac, that would be center. The advantage isn't necessarily on the defensive end. It's on the offensive end, because as we saw with Aaron Gordon last year, generally speaking, if you have a smaller defender on you, especially if you're one of these more thin athletic guys, you lose some of your competitive advantages because smaller guys are used to guys who handle the ball more. They're used to guys who can shoot. And so when you can get onto larger players, it gets more into the old like red hourback smalls versus talls and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if Isaac can play fives, they're not going to know how to handle him. If he's playing fours and threes, yeah, he's not that special, at least at this point. He'll have to get a lot better, just like every guy who comes into the NBA. So that's where the Magic have these problems, is is can they figure this out to make it work enough defensively to gain the offensive advantages? Because if they can, they're, they're in a place where smaller upgrades on the perimeter will make a bigger difference. Yeah, I mean, I, that, that, really, that really is kind of the key for them. And I, and I do think, like, you know, for a team right now that looks kind of locked into what it is, at least for the for the short term, you know that that is kind of to me like like you said, like I said before, along the lines with Gordon. I mean, that front line, if it does work out like that, that kind of fits into you know the the one way this team can really raise its ceiling with the current group that it has. And I don't think it's any coincidence that you know a team led by John Hammond uh, in the front office and, and Jeff Weltman, who used to be with him, uh, you know, pri- previously. You know, I don't think it's any coincidence that a team like that went out and, and picked a guy like Jonathan Isaac um, in the uh, um, in the in the top five or six in the draft. I mean, I think Isaac was the sixth overall pick. I mean, that that's Isaac is just like so many guys that the the Bucks have drafted in recent years with Hammond in charge. These long, athletic guys that you know, if you bring them in, the goal is to try to develop them into something more than what they are. And um, you know, if that if that works out with Isaac, like you said, if it plays out that way, then you could really be looking at an interesting front line there. Plus, Isaac, like some of those Bucks guys, has a good head on his shoulders. I think his recognition, especially defensively, is at a high level. He's not just a run-jump type of guy. And we're, I think we're seeing some of those players, well, they've always washed out to a larger degree just because this, the mental improvement is such an important part of the jump to the NBA because all of these players are just so talented physically that you have to, you know, your skill level and your your recognition intelligence has to be there. And I, I'm a believer in Isaac from that perspective. I think that he will that he will be impactful. And if he can block shots and maybe even get some steals at a, at a level that is commensurate with you know the offense that I think he can bring. Then he can. Then you you fi- kind of find a place for him. And then that's the other question with this is, let's say Isaac doesn't become like it doesn't look like he's going to be a center, and Aaron Gordon doesn't sign an extension. Well, then maybe those guys are cutting into each other a little bit, and maybe that may- changes the way they think about Aaron Gordon as a restricted free agent. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's that's really very true. Now. You know, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but Evan Fournier, I thought, you know, I think everybody kind of thought that was a pretty good contract he signed a couple of years ago for five years and 85 million. And it wasn't that he was awful last year, because I don't think he was, but, um, it, you know, his, his numbers kind of dipped a little bit across the board, at least percentages wise, and he didn't seem to have quite the year everyone expected. So do you um, do you think that was more of an aberration or, or is that or, or is maybe what he did the year before that, you know, maybe a little rosy and what we should expect from him going forward? What surprised me is that he didn't really develop much. I didn't see many added like wrinkles to his game. But one thing that I think he can really rely on is that his three-point shooting was meaningfully worse last year than it had been the last couple. So he shot 
about the same proportion other than 15-16 where he was a little bit more ridiculous. He shot 40% from three and 42% of his shots were threes. But if he could get in line more with 14-15 his first year in Orlando where that was 39% and then he made 38% of them, that's, you know, that's still a really good player. And that's still somebody that can be useful on this team. What Fournier, the, the big thing that they're going to need to figure out with him and Peyton is, can either of them really be a lead guy offensively or are they both complementary pieces? Because if they're both complementary pieces, then they need to think about the other guy much differently. If one of them takes a little bit of a step up and you think, okay, they can be a starter, you can make this all work with the other guy lower on the totem pole. So Fournier, he can take that step up, but my instinct is that he's more the support player broadly. So like maybe your third or fourth best offensive player as a starter, or maybe your best or second best as a bench player. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I, I think, I think you, you sum that up pretty well. I, I know when you were talking to Nate, like I, I think ideally he's your sixth man, right? And if you, if you have a guy like him coming off the bench as a creator and, and a guy who could space the floor, um, really attack second units. I, I think that that's probably the, the best outcome. It also negates some of his defensive issues too. because generally going up against, you know, weaker guys on the second unit. Um, yeah, know, but, and and weaker defenders too. I mean, that's something right. that we lose sight of sometimes. Is that part of the reason wings can do better on the second unit is just because teams should put their best defensive players. And that's like with Simmons. The one other concern I have with Fournier, and there really isn't a way to fix this with their roster, is he's probably going to be gu- be guarded by the other team's best perimeter defender at, at least of the wings most nights because Terrence Ross and Simmons are both inferior offensive players to Fournier overall. And it's something I'm going to watch with Orlando this year and a couple of other teams, Utah being one of them, is can those guys shoulder that burden? Because it's a lot easier being the guy who is the second focus than the first focus. And so if Fournier can handle those bright lights even a little bit, that'll be a big help for everybody else. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that's true, and and it, it you know I, I think you're right. I think when you people a lot of times will forget uh, about the fact that people are guarded, um, you know, by by a weaker defender on that second unit, and you know I think that's why you see a lot of these a lot of these you know these these guys like Ennis Kanter, Greg Monroe that have had a lot of success, uh, even though it's a different position um, and transition into more of a. Uh, a back uh, a backup role. It's it's that that's why they can really feast on a backup that isn't going to be nearly as good of a defender, um, and that that allows them to have a way to be more effective. And I think you know when you look at Fournier, especially on a Magic team where uh, you know there aren't a ton of creators like you guys were talking about, it probably would be, make a lot of sense if they they played him off the bench instead. But like I, I agree with the way you guys both look at it that I, I think you know the way this team is set up and the, with the money he's making, he's almost certainly going to be one of the five starters. Vogel has this challenge, which a couple other coaches do, where they need to stagger two guys in their starting lineup because they don't have another creator. And whichever teams can handle that well are going to survive it a lot better because if they use more of the hockey sub style with this team, their second unit is going to get demolished. I mean, if basically Shelvin Mack is the only creator on that second unit, they're going to get worked by a lot of people unless the defense is way better than I expect. But if they have Fournier or... Alfred Payton, depending on how they want to run this with those guys, they'll shine a little bit. And I think they can use that. And so for Vogel, this is, can he really embrace some of what makes this team work while also you can think of it as embracing the positives, or you can think about it as mitigating the negatives because both of them are true. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. And uh, speaking of negatives, uh, you were the, uh, to wrap up here, you were the, uh, the leader of the church of Mario Hazonia. Um, obviously not been a great 
start to his career, uh, I think probably about the worst case scenario for what anyone would have expected coming into the draft. And, you know, at this point, do you, do you think the, the, the ship has totally sailed on that? Or, or do you think there's still an opportunity to maybe, you know, maybe not get back to where he, people thought he might've been as a top five pick, but at least to be a, a productive long-term fit in the league? He's just 22, which is something that you, you kind of want to give patience on. He's a little bit older, like a couple of months older than Dante Exum and Bruno Caboclo, two guys that still get a lot of leeway. Granted, some of that with Exum is injury-based. But with Hazonia, I think the ship has sailed on him being a star in the NBA because at least at this point, you know, maybe he could come back at like 28 and have figured out all of his flaws. But what I keep thinking back to is the idea that if he could ever be a 36, 37% three-point shooter. He's still relatively athletic for, you know, for what he can bring. And his vision periodically as a passer and as a ball handler wasn't terrible. So like if he could be, you know, like is a a kind of a, a big fish in a smaller pond, like on a second unit, I'm not foreclosing that possibility at all, but I'm not sure that it's going to happen anytime soon. And that's the concern is that, you ha- you're, I think we're going to know within the first month or two of this season whether he's fundamentally different or not. The problem with that is Orlando is going to have to tell it a little bit earlier because he has that uh, team option for the last year. And for the NBA, for those guys on rookie scale contracts, they decided a year ahead. So even if you think that he might be re- might be better, you still might decline that option just because clearing that five, six million in guaranteed money could be a good thing for them. Yeah, and that, I mean, it doesn't happen very often to have a guy um, get that fourth-year option turned down. But I, I think given where his own is at, given the fact that the old regime drafted him, I think, you know, it, 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 does, it does leave you to wonder that if there was a guy that was going to happen to, you know, he seems to be a prime candidate for it. And also, it, it would be entirely possible. So his option, if they pick it up, is about $5.2 million. It's entirely possible that even if he has a solid year, that that's enough money to bring him back. So they could decline it, and then it's the I think of it as the Austin Rivers rule yeah. that you can still re-sign the guy. You just have to sign him for less. It actually happened with Tyler Ennis this summer, a guy who I actually wanted Orlando to sign. Incidentally, I thought that he would have been a a better fit for their second unit than Shelvin Mack was. But they'll need to kind of see how those kinds of guys work. And while I think the biggest concept with Orlando is that they need somebody at the top of the totem pole that'll slide everybody else down, getting a little bit more depth and having some better performances from support players will make life easier on everybody else. That's really true of every team. But Orlando has a lot of rolls at the dice at that lower level. And so if, you know, Terrence Ross can find himself a reliable role, if Vucevic can find himself a reliable role, John Isaac, you know, if, if any of those guys can really do it, it makes everything else better. But then the big thing with them is, can they, presumably through the draft, because I doubt it's going to be through free agency, can they find that guy? And you know, some people, including myself, would hope that they would have got that Isaac can be that guy or maybe they passed on it in Dennis Smith. But they're going to have to do that. And the problem is they're a little bit too good unless they do really well in the lottery to jump into that spot to get a top three pick to make it happen. Yeah, exactly. No, I, th- I think that's a I think that's a great summation. So, Danny. All right, man. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, let uh, you have a million things going on, as always. I know. So uh, let everybody know. Uh, where they can uh, where they can follow your your work and your many places and what you're up to. So you can listen to me on Real Jam Radio and Dunked On, which I do with Nate Duncan, and then you can read me at the Athletic and Sporting News, where my cap stuff is still in flux with where it's going to be. I, I write on Magic and everybody else. And then while it's not on Orlando, my book A Hundred Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die comes out November first. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to I'm excited to see that. How does it feel to have that? Uh, I know this isn't this isn't that podcast, but how does it feel to uh, to have that to have that all done and and just be waiting for it to come out? It's nice. I mean, because <laughs> you have that you have that weird time. At least I did, where you have it done, but you haven't really gotten any feedback yet. And so at that point, I was freaking out about, oh, is it good? Is it not? And, and now I'm I'm really happy with it. I think that it's I'm I'm proud of the product that it is. But now I'm just excited to see to have everybody else experience it. And it's a very strange thing because, as you know, in our business, there is not much delayed gratification. That's not the way it works. You know, maybe you put maybe you have an idea for a piece and it takes a little while to come to fruition, but once you finish it, it's usually within a week or two that it's up. This, you know, the first draft of it was done in March. The final draft of it was done a few months ago. So you're just kind of sitting there going, well, let's see what happens. Yeah, that's it's uh, it's it's fun, man. I, I've had uh, I've gotten I've gotten a couple books in the mail recently uh, from from other people written them. And it's it's fun. Uh, I, I don't wish the, the work you have to do to put together a book on anybody, but uh, it's it's fun to see. Uh, it's fun to see friends have a, a lot of hard work to put to fruition. So I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy you've got it done. So thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. Absolutely, anytime. All right, Candice, thanks for coming on. Uh, I wanted to wait until we got into the preseason a bit to do this one with you because we didn't really know what the, the long-term situation with uh, Markeith Morris was going into camp when I did most of these. So now that, now that his uh, legal situation is cleared up and he's back with the team, you know, what, what, are the Wizards, uh, what, are, what do the Wizards have in mind at this point to try to get through the next few weeks until he is ready to get back on the court and be there starting power forward again? So, you know, Scott Brooks will say they haven't really made up their mind as far as if they want to stick with one guy, go by power forward by committee, or just go by matchups. Um, I, I'd say, and they haven't used this option yet, um, of course, they don't have to listen to me. But I think Mike Scott would be the best option to stick with um, for several reasons. One, um, his body type is probably the most similar to Markeith. And, you know, Markeith can play that stretch four row, but he can also um, play inside. And I think I saw that a lot during their third preseason game against the Cavaliers. Of course, they were playing like a skeleton version of the Cavs, but right. um, he was smart enough to um, find a mismatch uh, with Jose Calderon and put his butt down there on the post and try to score over him, which he did. And I just think he, he recognized, not saying that Otto Porter can't do that. I think he will, but I think uh, Mike Scott is more of a physical player. Um, he can do what Otto does in, in, in the, in the sense of those um, being open on, on the wing for those catch and shoot threes, but also um, defending. He was able to um, go toe to toe with Kendrick Perkins on one play. So all of that, I think he's the best for candidate, but also, um, I think if you bring in Jason Smith to be your starting four, you know, he's going to have to be going against starting fours. And A, the power forward position is not Smith's natural position. He's a center. He's a seven-foot center who transformed himself into um, a kind of a stretch four. So he's somewhat playing out of position against the best guys in the world. Right. Um, and also, Otto Porter, how much do you want to put Otto Porter at the four uh, to be that physical, somewhat bring that physical uh, um, nature to the game when he's all about running the wing, getting out um, on the break, and catching and shooting. 
sometimes creating, but mostly catching and shooting um, when the ball swings this way. Yeah, I mean, so so essentially, it, it the choice comes down to you either play Scott, which I, I think would probably be the best option. You play Smith, or you you start Kelly Oubre and then slide Otto over, right? I mean, those are kind of the three potential options on the board. Precisely, and yesterday again, it's only preseason. These are friendlies, but um, Kelly couldn't stay on the floor more than six minutes because he picked up three fouls again, and this was against uh, Cleveland's C team. Um, so you're going to have some problems. I think sometimes with a maturing player, and Kelly, this is going to be his third year, but he's still 21 years old. Um, He has progressed, uh, but he's still maturing and still um, not, not to say anything against, you know, Kelly, but I do think right now he's, he's best in spurts and he can make that small lineup um, ridiculously um, um, skilled and um, deliciously, um, offensive at, at times. I don't know if why I said deliciously, offensive. <laughs> but anyway, he can make that small unit to be, uh, you know, what the NBA is going towards. But do you want to start the game with him? I, I just don't know if you can, you can start him against, again, starting threes. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, I thought since they signed Scott in the summer, um, you know, I thought it was a nice signing at the time. Two years ago, he was a guy that, you know, proved he could, you know, be a guy that could stretch the floor in and also, right. you know, be a decent defensive player. And you, you look at the the issues that, that Washington had at times last year, try to, trying to fill in minutes behind Markeith and play that same style. It made sense that if you could get, you know, Scott back on the right page mentally after a, you know, a lost year on a variety of levels, you could, you could maybe have a really good fit there. And I, so I think, I think you're right. If it was me, um, I would lean I would lean that way personally and kind of go into the year that way. But that that transitions to something else about this Wizards team, which is that you know last year they were remarkably durable um, up and down the lineup. They had their right. starting five as much as I think any team in the league. I think they played the most minutes together of any lineup in the league last year. Um, where where is kind of the the state of the health of the rest of those guys? Marcin Gortat, Otto Porter, and obviously John Wall and Bradley Beal, and and is there any is there any concern from the Wizards that that they'll have kind of a regression back to the mean in terms of games missed this year from those guys? Well, the best thing about the summer, the well, the best news coming out the summer was how John was able to go through a full off season. Um, work out, and obviously, if you watch his uh, Instagram posts and Twitter, you you see he was doing you know cycling every day, boxing, and working out with um, uh, the famed trainer Rob. Is it McCallahan? Yeah, McClanahan. Yeah, and uh, had that nice little day with LeBron. So he's he's at his peak health, and you know, watching him in the two limited spurts during the t- during these past two preseason games, he's looked fine. Same thing with Brad Bill. Same with Otto Porter and Marcin Gortat, who, who's the oldest guy on the team. Uh, you know, I guess the problem is the I don't, and you know Sheldon Max injury, uh, which is devastating for him. He he was not going to crack the rotation, so it's not like they lost right. a guy there. And Tim Frazier, very mild growing strain, but he should be back soon. I think their big thing as far as health, um, it would be again Jan Mahimi. Um, during the during the preseason, you know, you just have to remember that this guy has not truly played five on five basketball in months even you know at the end of the regular season he had that nice little stretch but he got hurt and didn't return um until you know second round of playoffs but then you go in the off season you're not playing five and five you're working out you're losing weight and you may do some one on 
one on, you know, whatever, but that's against a smaller uh, trainer. So Jan seems to be healthy, but he's not quite there as far as um, where, where the rest of his teammates are having rhythm with them and just feeling comfortable. He doesn't look comfortable out there. Yeah, I was, that was actually going to be my next question. He, he was the big free agent signing they had last summer after they struck out on a few higher profile targets. He was probably the best guy on the board when they did sign him. But, you know, last year, like you said, he had the knee issues. He was basically ineffective or not available all season. Right. Um, you know, only played in a handful of games. You know, I know he's, I know he's played, you know, a few minutes in each of these games, so at least he's able to get out there and do stuff. But he hasn't, uh, from, from your vantage point, he hasn't, he hasn't looked really like himself yet. No, he had, um, of course, it blew up basketball Twitter because nothing else is happening on basketball Twitter. But when they played the Cavs, Jeff Green dunked, him, dunked on him twice. And initially, I thought uh, Jan was doing a pretty decent job. He had Jeff Green one-on-one. And, of course, Jeff being a forward and, and Jan being uh, you know 6'11", Jan was able to stay in front, stuff his shot. It was like, okay. He, he looks mobile, and that's maybe that was one of the first signs I've seen in the preseason where the old Jan Mahimi was back. But then um, you, re- you react late and you get posterized. It's, it's, it's something that will blow up, um, you know, the bench and make it, uh, you know, in, 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 a lot of tweets will come out of it. But um, beneath that is um, does Jan have his timing and uh, does Jan feel comfortable in what the Wizards are doing defensively? Yeah, and and you know that was a guy that you thought coming into last season there would be some some playing time issues at some point with Cortak, given the fact that he's right. a younger guy. Yeah, he's even when he came contract. back. Yeah, right. And and you know it, it has been kind of remarkable that you know going on eighteen months after he signed, he hasn't really had any stretch yet where he's consistently looked like the guy he was. You know when you were covering him in Indiana before that. Right. Um, well, I will say once he once he came back after All Star break, there was a nice little stretch, and he was taking minutes from Marchin um, mm-hmm. at the end of games. He was closing games out with the starters, or, or not not closing games per se, but playing in the fourth quarter, which right. uh, which I, I thought was uh, a pretty telltale sign. Um, so I wonder how long it's going to get him back from that, and you know. He is his rotation uh, is set as a backup big behind Gartot, but again, I'm just wondering, you know, how long will he feel comfortable? Will he will he feel um, as if he can do what he did back in what was that 2015, 2016 when he became the starter after Roy Hibbert? No, it's funny. Even two years ago, he was like, you know, Roy. He was replacing seven foot two Roy Hibbert because Jan Mahimi was the future where basketball NBA bigs were going, and now. Just two years later, it's stretch fives. It's Kevin Love starting at the center and, 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 and that trend. So now Jan looks a bit dated. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, you look at the way the league has gone even in the last 18 months. And if the Wizards had, you know, another guy who they'd invested in on the wing or a guy that was, you know, kind of that combo forward role that we were just talking about with Mike Scott, you'd probably feel better than if they have, you know, $30 million essentially tied up in two centers at this point. And, and, you know, when you have Cortat with this year and next year left on his deal and Mahimi with this year and two more, you know, especially if Mahimi can't, you know, uh, you know, at some point this year, I know the wizards are certainly expecting him to get back to where he was before last season. But if he, if he ends up still kind of being in a, in between place, that that's a lot of money, money tied up in a couple of guys at a position that, you know, as the league is trending towards playing smaller and faster and space on the floor more, um, you know, that they don't necessarily fit. 
the way that the league is going. True, but to that um, to that point, the Jason Smith signing pro- at this point looks to be um, the best signing from last summer, just because the way that again that he uh, developed into uh, a shooter who could shoot past fifteen, seventeen feet, knock down a three, and place Burts as a as a as a stretch four. He can he can be a little bit more flexible than I thought they realized at the time. Right. Well, which is crazy because I, I know of all the signings they had that summer, that was the one I liked the least. And it is, <laughs> it is, uh, it is pretty amazing that he has, you know, he was very effective for them last year and really, really has turned into, um, you know, a decent fine for them. Like you said, who can play their spot. Now, the two guys we haven't really talked about yet are John and Brad. Um, you know, they, you know, they just talk pretty big, you know, both those guys like to talk. They just, you know, they talked to Brian Windhorst when he was there. They both had colorful things to say. John, I thought, uh, you know, John saying he's the best point guard in the East, which I would agree with and isn't really that disputable, I don't think. But Did you say uh, best point guard in the East or the NBA? The East, I believe, is okay. what you said. Uh, okay. and, you know, I, would, Brad, I would agree. Yeah. Right, I would too. And Bradley Beal with a little more, uh, <laughs> a little more eye-popping remark that the Cavs were afraid of them. Uh, but those guys, you know, I think last year, especially with Brad staying healthy, with John getting back from the knee injury, they, they looked like they were a, a top five backcourt in the league. Um, and, and really look good. And, you know, this year with, the, with some of the guys that left the Eastern Conference uh, over the summer, I, I think that both John and Brad should make the all-star team this year. Um, you know, what is kind of the, the confidence level at this point of those two guys? And do you, do you, you know, now that you're around this team again this year, do you sense uh, kind of a different level of confidence for both of them now that they both got a healthy year under their belts and they, they're coming into the season with a lot of momentum? Yeah, the confidence is sky high. Um, I feel like when they they pretty much talk, I guess, to local media, they sometimes reel it in. So they'll be they'll say very confident things, and then, but we need to go back there, and but we need to go. You know, we, we still need to. You know, um, sorry, got a right. Um, oh. We still need to. You know, back it up. Right. So I mean, that's that sounds sensible. That sounds rational. Yeah. Like, right. Uh, you should definitely say that. But yeah, their, their confidence. They've been saying that truly i think since last february when uh they had that winning streak took cleveland toe-to-toe yeah and and even after the season when they're out of the playoffs saying that you know they they should they should be better than this 49 win team they should make it to the eastern conference finals and obviously uh you know grass comments in the offseason that cleveland didn't want to see them and but i see his point i see his point tim Washington gave them fits as far as matchups last year. And I think Markeith was a key, um, key uh, pu- piece of the puzzle. Um, obviously, I wonder how long they, is he going to be able to get back to his, uh, his game speed? Because remember, this sports hernia surgery, I'm sorry, injury, it happened in the middle of summer. So we don't know how long he sh- he's truly been away from the basketball court. Plus, you know, with the kid and then the trial, he hasn't been able to do no zip zero zilch. Yeah, and that's a really critical thing for them. Like you said, he was a huge part of their success last year. Um, you know, giving them the ability to go small at times. You know, being able to to kind of guard really anybody at the power forward position, either the smaller guys that teams play as, as the you know smaller stretchier guys, or banging with a bigger guy. Um, you know, that that flexibility did really did really help them out a lot. Um, the the initial time frame right now is that he's probably going to be out till like what mid November. I think that's yeah. That's the 
I think that's the end of that time, that six to eight timeline. So if he had right. the surgery on September, what, 22nd, I believe, then he, he's almost at uh, the fourth week. And, you know, if he's, if he comes back sooner rather than later, but that's the thing the the recovery timeline, even after he hits six weeks, what is he going to be able to do? Um, light jogging, light shooting. Will he be able to, the big question is when he'll be able to participate in five and five and scrimmaging. And that, it doesn't seem like, I mean, I don't know, but just reading the tea leaves when Scott Brooks talks, he always, um, he always throws in a, I don't know how long he's going to be out, but it's going to be a while. So who knows? Yeah, no, I, I think, I, you know, I think it's, it, anytime a guy gets cut open, it's, it's a significant thing. And, you know, when you look at, you know, like we said before, how healthy they were last year and how key to that starting five was to their success. Um, you know, the fact that Marquise could be out for two months or, or, you know, maybe even longer if there's a setback or two, right. um, you know, that that's going to be, you know, you could miss, you know, 20% of the season before he even comes back. And like you said, there, there's a pretty big, you know, adjustment to trying to come back mid-season to, to get back up to speed. You know, the Wizards saw that last year with Mahimi. He never, you know, even though it was a different injury, he came back and never got right. So, very you know, true. obviously the hope is that he, from them, for their sake, he would come back and be ready to go. But there's no guarantee that he's just going to walk back in and be the same player he was last year the second he's all right. And Markeith is a, a year older now. Um, this is his second such injury. The way he described it, sports, it was definitely sports hernia in 2010 while he was at KU, but this time it was uh, a weakened abdominal wall, which is basically a symptom of sports hernia, but it just sounds, that sounds painful. Yes. My <laughs> ab wall uh, needs fixing. And so, yeah, I, I guess I, I would have been shut down from basketball activities too. Yes. Like Marquise. Yes, I, I agree. So last thing I'll get you out of here with, you know, with all the talk about these guys, you know, like from John and Brad about how, how good they think they can be and kind of the state of the East. What do you think a realistic goal is for this team? I mean, do you think that, I mean, I'm sure they're going into the season thinking they're as good as anybody, you know, probably without a guy named LeBron James on their team, even, even including the Celtics, who are a team that, you know, many people see ahead of them after the moves they made this summer and beating them in the playoffs. I mean, do you think that, you know, kind of being in the running for, say the second seed in the East is realistic for these guys or, or are they maybe in reality a, a step below that in your eyes? Yeah, it, it is telling that when, you know, Brad made his, um, I believe that we're the best team in the East. I really do comments to, to Brian Windhorst. That was way after the knowledge that Marquise is going to be out. So even with one of their key guys out, he would still ride that, that, uh, that's that very strong belief. So realistically, for sure, 50-plus. Um, don't know if I'll throw out a number, but I, I for over 50. They should. Um, and I would say the NBA general managers were right. I had them as number three, and I know it's so simple to say Cleveland-Boston, but I I just think those guys, um, Boston has a, has a pretty much a new, a new team, but a great coach, and they're all healthy. Now, Cleveland, Isaiah Thomas won't be back until, what, January? But still, in that locker room the other day, and just looking at all, all the talent that was not playing, you, you walk in and there's Dwayne Wade, there's um, Isaiah Thomas, there's LeBron James, there's J.R. Smith, and, all, and Tristan Thompson all just walking around the locker room not playing. It's like, golly, they are so deep. So who's, even if they coast um, and don't finish number one, then 
you know, they're still going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals for sure. It's a matter of if the Wizards can make it their pass, shoot. Um, do you think they'll, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, face, uh, hopefully, they don't, hopefully they don't face them in the, the second round for their sake. Yeah, I, I, I think they've got, I'm with you, I, I think they've got a real chance to be second in the East. Uh, I'm skeptical about this Boston team. I think they have a lot of uh, developing to do. Um, they've, you know, they've got some, you know, some thin spots on the roster. Uh, Kyrie Irving has never proven to be both a winning player when LeBron isn't on his team or healthy uh, for long stretches. And he's never had a season as good as Isaiah Thomas did last year, even if he is a better player than Isaiah. So, um, uh, their talent anyway. So it, it is, it is going to be really interesting to see. And I, I think they, I think they have a chance to be that, that good. I mean, you know, this marquee thing is going to be interesting to monitor, but you know, if Brad and John are healthy and if John, if, if Brad especially can take another step from where he was last year, I mean, that's two of probably the 10 best players in the East. And if you, if you have right. two guys that good, you should be, you know, you should be able to be right in the mix. Indeed. And um, I do think they're deeper this year, um, even when, even uh, with, you know, Jody and Jody makes and Mike Scott, I, 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 I'm, and Tim Frazier, who's a huge upgrade at, at backup Frazier, point guard. Right. I'm high on the bench this year. I'll say that. Yeah, I think they, they should be able to weather injuries better. You know, Meeks needs to stay healthy, which he hasn't done in a while. Um, and obviously, Frazier's been banged up in camp, but he should be a huge upgrade of what they had at point guard last year uh, behind Wall. So, yeah, no, I, I think there's I think there's plenty to like, and it should be it should be a fun year for you. So, Candace, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. And before uh, before you go, let people know where they can find you, and uh, if you've got any projects coming up, let them know uh, what to look out for. Oh, you can follow me, kids, at uh, at Candace D. Buckner. Um, as far as shoot, I don't. I had so much stuff, Tim. The season preview stuff is just—it's never ending, right? Never ending, and I, I even hate talking about it. Well, that's not a great plug. You should totally <laughs> erase this last in. Like I hate talking about my stories; they're so time well, well, just I sound like terrible. About your, complaining you just don't like about talking about job. yourself. That's all right. Uh, every uh, that's no that's no big thing. But uh, but th- thanks for doing this. So I appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. All right, Timbo. All right, thank you too. In order: Brad Rowland, Rick Bunnell, Manny Navarro, Danny Larue. Candace Buckner, appreciate all of them taking some time to make this preview an interesting one. But like I said at the beginning, we still have two more. Uh, Southwest Division preview, which will come out probably tomorrow. And the Central Division, which will come out Monday or Tuesday ahead of the opener in Cleveland for Cavs Celtics, where I'll be. So look forward to both of those. Uh, you can find my work on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. You can find me on Facebook at Tim Bontemps NBA, on the web at WashingtonPost.com slash sports or in the pages of the newspaper. Please go find the podcast wherever you get it. Give us a five-star rating and review. It's helpful and appreciated. Please go find the music of Glenn Yoder in the Western States. Glenn's my editor at the Post. Does a great job. Has a cool band. I've seen them in person. We're checking out. So go find their work online and purchase it. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check back, like I said, for the Southwest Division preview and for the Central Division preview. And hopefully one more other pod- podcast to get us started before the season gets going on Tuesday. So look forward to all that. Thanks for stopping by. And we'll catch you next time.